Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 287, The Conquest of Scotland. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Martin, Terry, and Spike for signing up already. For the last six years, Athelstan has been ruling in a manner that hasn't been seen in Britain for generations. Beyond being a warlord or even a king, Athelstan had been acting more like an emperor. All of the Anglo-Saxon territories were annexed into his new kingdom of England. The kings of Wales were now mere members of his court, and he was receiving tributes and gifts from Scotland, Norway, and Francia. Furthermore, the next generation of monarchs were living in his court. England and Athelstan himself had become the center of the Western world and he was ruling over his people with a firm hand. Emphasizing his dominion, Athelstan held a great court at Exeter. And this was an audacious move. Only years earlier, Athelstan had carried out an ethnic cleansing of the Cornish from this city. And even with the Cornish presumably still gone, Exeter still had stone monuments to its Cornish past. And in documents, we see names that are clearly of Cornish origin. Athelstan may have conducted a purge, but the people still remembered. History remained. And yet here he was, running a large English council right in the middle of all of this past. It was a risky and aggressive move. But, like his grandfather, Athelstan was a propagandist, and he knew what message he wanted to send. So he didn't hold a great court in Exeter simply to demonstrate its power. He was doing something more. He built monuments of his own. Athelstan leveraged his incredible wealth to reshape the perceptions of the local Anglo-Saxons, who had only recently been absorbed into his newly founded kingdom. And there's a weird quirk of human psychology that tells us that if you tell someone something enough times, and if they start to hear it from other sources as well, they start to believe it. And so... William of Malmesbury tells us that the city and the surrounding shire was full of reminders that Athelstan was king, that they were the English, and since he was the king of the English, they owed him their fealty. And we see this kind of aggressive imperial posture in other areas of Athelstan's rule as well. The most prominent clue in archaeology are the coins. Athelstan minted massive numbers of coins to demonstrate his imperium over the island. But the written record is even more clear in how Athelstan was fashioning himself as a ruler. In a charter dated to 930, Athelstan granted lands in Lancashire to the Archbishopric of York. And he signed this charter while he was residing in the former Danish borough of Nottingham. And witnessing that charter was the Archbishop of York, the Archbishop of Canterbury, three Welsh kings, seven eldermen, six jarls, ten thanes, and thirteen highborn nobles, and presumably a partridge in a pear tree. And here's the thing about this. Having nobles in a witness list is nothing new. But the stature of the people in this list should tell you exactly how powerful Athelstan was. Athelstan wasn't administering his kingdom with a few nobles and some assorted thanes. Instead, his court housed multiple kings, in addition to archbishops and large numbers of eldermen and jarls. 
the power that was concentrating in this court was staggering. Now, granted, all kings try and present themselves as mighty, and a few of them actually were. But I can't stress enough how unique this imperial posturing was in the context of Anglo-Saxon history. Neither his father nor his grandfather had ever reached the heights that Athelstan was at. And consequently, it doesn't look like he's presiding over a king's court. This looks more like an imperial court. And with this new elevated role on the island and on the world stage, political and economic life in Britain got a lot bigger. It also became more complex. Thanks to our own cultural stories, when we imagine times of advancement like the one that Athelstan ushered in, we often imagine them as times of personal opportunity. But that wasn't the case for everyone. And sometimes, it just meant that you had a lot more work to do. See, the thing about Anglo-Saxon life is that as it became more complex, the divisions of labor and duties became stratified and socially enforced. Not necessarily at all levels of society, but certainly at the upper levels. And this was particularly true for the role of noblewomen. Oftentimes, we get our visions of medieval society from fairy tales or from works of fantasy. And fairy tales tend to present noblewomen as not having any work of any kind. And it gives you the sense that they were just kind of there for the purpose of having kids and probably being decorative. But the fact is that real medieval noblewomen absolutely had jobs. And in particular, they tended to be tasked with the running of the household. And that was no small matter when you're married to the king, because a king's household was enormous. So what we're talking about here is an administrative position on a massive scale. Just think about all the things that a king and his court must do. You have to welcome diplomats, soothe noble tensions, administer justice, and all the while you also have to radiate authority and majesty. There were all manner of things that a king needed to do on a daily basis, and virtually every single one of them required a household in good working order. And remember, the household had to be maintained not just at home, but also on the road while the court was mobile, which would have been the case for large portions of the year. Consequently, the role of many queens was akin to being the chief of operations for a decently sized company, and the lack of someone at the helm would have been felt within a matter of hours. And Athelstan had no queen. So how did that work? I mean, somebody must have been doing this labor day after day. It had to be done. But who? Furthermore, there were four boys being fostered in court, and every one was a future ruler. And they required tutors and minders and feeding. And that's simply the tip of the iceberg. Athelstan's court also included full-grown kings, as well as archbishops, jarls, eldermen, the deposed queen of Francia, and other assorted members of the upper crust. And all those people would be riding around with him. And that's just the marquee names. Given the sheer scale of power and wealth that was concentrating in his court, and the number of unlisted people who accompanied the king as Athelstan went from place to place, well, the scale of this court would have been staggering. And consequently, the maintenance of the household would have been equally so. And yet, strangely, many treat the taking care of the household as a non-task, as something that just happens. But it's real work, and it takes real effort and expertise to carry out. It's also not easy or quick. It's relentless. And so while our scribes are telling us about monarchs and generals, 
don't forget that sitting in the shadows was someone, often many someones, doing the hard work of making life possible for that monarch or general. They don't typically get credit in the record, and they don't even get much credit today, but they're there. And while Athelstan no doubt had a small army of servants that helped fill the gap that existed because he had no queen, they couldn't do everything. Furthermore, at the end of the day, the maintenance of that staff still took some time and effort. Somebody had to organize it, tell them what to take care of, tell them what they needed to do better. These were all jobs that somebody needed to do, and someone was doing. We simply just don't know who. And it's possible that one of his sisters filled this role, perhaps even Queen Egifu, who was the mother of Louis. But we don't know for sure. But are you getting a sense of what this court must have looked like? Far from the strikingly small-town feel of the Watanagamot from the days of Alfred, the court of King Athelstan feels like a British Charlemagne. And that was something that Athelstan took note of, and even promoted. Here's how Athelstan described himself in a charter. Quote, King of the English, elevated by the right hand of the Almighty, which is Christ, to the throne of the whole kingdom of Britain. End quote. Tell me that doesn't sound like something Charlemagne would have said. And actually, Athelstan also took on Charlemagne-sized problems. Expanding his kingdom was a bit of a headache. Jorvik was still a problem. In fact, the North in general was a bit of a problem. But that didn't mean he was without options. The fact is that Northumbria had endured countless periods of regime change like this. And not just new dynasties. We're talking entirely new cultures taking control and even changing the name of the kingdom. But through all of it, one thing remained constant, the Archbishopric of York. And so, like Charlemagne, Athelstan sought to use the church to solidify his grip on power. And he began with the granting of lands, which was that charter I mentioned earlier, where he was giving bits of Lancashire to the Archbishopric of York. And then, when the old archbishop died in 931, Athelstan was free to appoint someone who would be friendly to the imperial goal of England and so he chose a man named Wolfstan. Through their shared religion, Athelstan could hopefully strengthen his hold on the north. And I'm sure the plan here was that the new Archbishop Wolfstan would help him do that. But there was one small issue. And it was an issue so small, I wonder if Athelstan even saw it. See, Athelstan's conquest of Jorvik and the expansion of his dominion over the other kingdoms of Britain wasn't just built on his military strength. It was also built upon religious animosity. For his newly acquired subjects, Athelstan might be a foreigner, but at least he was a Christian follower, unlike those Danes. He was also new, which carries with it a certain amount of hope. But that was years ago. And since then, to his new subjects, Athelstan had become all too real. And the cold hard fact of politics is that the reality of governing will never compare to your hopes. And then, just to twist the knife, in the past years, the kings of Dublin began to convert to Christianity, thus taking away the one thing that bound the north to Athelstan, their religious animosity towards paganism. That was a problem. And so suddenly, to some, Athelstan wasn't some new tough war leader who promised to keep them safe from the pagan hordes. Now, he was just some foreign guy picking their pockets and riding around like he owned the place. Furthermore, the people of Jorvik had ties with the Kingdom of Dublin. 
And it wasn't just the Danes who lived in Jorvik who had those ties. The English who lived there were also close to Dublin. They traded with them, they sometimes shared their nobility with them, and the cultural link between Jorvik and Dublin was now generations deep. And so something in the north was festering. And that meant that people who had been openly opposed to the Danes only a handful of years earlier were now starting to question whether they made the right call. And meanwhile, there was also the cultural response to peace among the nobility that we talked about last episode. Peace wasn't all that good for them. For the English, peace meant stagnation at best. And for the subject kingdoms, like Scotland, it actually meant they were going backwards. After all, those tributes were sapping the income of Scotland and transferring it to Athelstan. And for what? So they could be safe from other Christians? That's not exactly a good sales pitch. And it looks like it started to lose its popularity. Because in the north, something happened. Something that caused Britain to explode into war, with Scotland and Strathclyde coming into direct conflict with England. And we don't know precisely what caused it. One possibility might lie in Dublin. See, some historians point out that Olaf Guthrifson, he was the son of Athelstan's old enemy, Guthrith, had recently been elected as the King of Dublin. And he'd also converted to Christianity. And those two factors might have made an alliance with Dublin rather attractive to King Constantine of Scotland, especially since King Olaf of Dublin was King Constantine's son-in-law. And a Scottish alliance with Dublin very well could have led to Athelstan declaring war, because an alliance like that wouldn't just be a threat to his imperium, it would also be a violation of the oaths that Constantine took at Amont seven years earlier because Constantine had sworn that he wouldn't support Guthrith's claims, and that included supporting Guthrith's son. So that might have been the action behind the conflict. Or perhaps Scotland simply launched into an open rebellion without any family intrigue. Or maybe they refused to pay their tribute. Or maybe Athelstan was facing opposition at home from bored and bloodthirsty eldermen. The truth is, we don't know what happened. All we know is that in May of 834, messengers were sent ordering the eldermen and thanes of England to raise their forces. The West Saxon Ferd was directed to gather at Winchester on Whit Sunday, and there they were joined by the armies of Wales. Four Welsh armies in total, each led by their own king, and on Athelstan's command, the combined forces of Wessex and Wales marched north to Nottingham. And there they collected the forces of the Anglo-Danes of the five boroughs in the surrounding area. Next, they marched north into Jorvik, again collecting more warriors. And as they went, Athelstan stopped at Beverly to collect the banner of St. John. And then he went to Chester Lestrade and bestowed gifts upon the shrine of St. Cuthbert, seeking his favor. This was no stealth invasion. Athelstan was being loud with his intentions and he was taking his time with it. And this might seem like an odd move to you if you know the value of surprise, but this approach had some advantages. First, it gave his enemies in Scotland time to realize exactly how large the Imperial Army of England was. And let's face it, an Imperial Army is exactly what it was. There were five kings in the damn thing. It also bolstered Athelstan's position as a godly monarch, who was behaving in ways that would have telegraphed good king to any who heard it. But finally, by doing this, 
he was giving his naval fleet time to organize. An operation this large wasn't going to go it alone. An army marches on its stomach, and the size of this army required an enormous amount of resources to maintain. But creating a supply train along rough and hostile terrain would have been incredibly risky. Resupplying by ship, on the other hand, would have been much safer, provided, of course, that the seas were clear. Furthermore, by conducting a large multi-pronged attack, he would leave his enemies in Scotland unsure where to concentrate their forces. And so, as Athelstan prayed over the shrine of St. Cuthbert, his forces raided along the coast of Scotland, going so far north as Caithness. And then, after the coasts were burned, Athelstan finally gathered his army and crossed into Scottish lands. And it sounds like he engaged in a ruthless scorched earth campaign. With the coast being burned and pillaged, inland, wherever Athelstan's army went, the lands were stripped bare. And this in particular might be evidence that the impetus of this attack was either an unpaid tribute or retribution for rebellion. But again, we don't know for sure. Furthermore, we're not entirely sure whether or not there was a battle. Legends indicate that there might have been one, but there's no solid evidence. What we are sure of is that King Constantine of Scotland realized that he couldn't face Athelstan's imperial force in the field. He didn't have the forces sufficient to stop them, and without allies, they would be crushed. So he ordered the retreat. The king and his army fled deeper into Scotland, retreating beyond the Solway. But King Athelstan and his forces didn't get dressed up for nothing. And if the Scots could cross a river, well, so could they. So the English, along with their Welsh allies, crossed the Solway and pursued the Scots, defeating them. It was autumn, and Scotland had been conquered. The campaign, likely due to the combined army's sheer scale, was over practically before it began, and Athelstan's imperial army never had to go any farther than Dunatar. This was a humiliating defeat for Scotland and it was made worse by what came next. King Constantine, along with Owain of Strathclyde, met with King Athelstan and had to remake their oaths, and once again agree to be under kings, serving beneath Athelstan. And then the king of the English made his most punishing demand. If Constantine wanted peace, he would have to hand over his own son as a hostage to Athelstan. And this was a son who Athelstan had earlier baptized. Constantine agreed. Now, up until now, Athelstan had proven himself to be a master of diplomacy, but hostage-taking had a long history of failure in England. If you wanted to ensure peace, marriage was your best bet, and Athelstan had done a lot of that to great success. Honestly, marriage was about as effective as having a big army. The less effective methods were oaths and baptisms, I mean, you might remember that with Alfred and Guthrum, we saw exactly how badly oaths could go. Because oaths only counted if the people swearing actually meant it. Now, Christians did try and game the system by having sacred relics involved in the oaths. But again, that only mattered if the people actually believed that the relics truly bound their oaths through divine power. And as we've seen repeatedly by now, there were a limited number of people who believed that. Baptisms had similar problems, and while Guthrum retired after his baptism, I think the reason why he did that was probably because he was given a kingdom 
and that rating wasn't worth it for him anymore. I don't think it had much to do with a baptism, since we've seen plenty of other leaders get baptized and they go right back to fighting. In case in point, Athelstan baptized King Constantine's son. But here he was, having to fight the Scots. So yeah, oaths and baptisms weren't that great for diplomacy. You wanted a marriage. However, oaths and baptisms weren't the worst option. Right at the bottom of the list of effective diplomacy tactics were hostages, what the English called gizzle and the Welsh called gwistel. And the truth is that the history of hostages in Britain is grim. If you were handed over as a hostage, your chances of getting out of it alive and unmutilated weren't great. Because it turns out that nobles are kind of assholes who are perfectly willing to fight, even if it gets their friends and kids killed. It happens again and again in the record. But even with that long history of failure, hostage-taking was actually quite common, even for things unrelated to war. For example, in the agreement between Alfred and Guthrum, they stipulate that Wessex could demand hostages from the Danes in trade negotiations, all to ensure that no fraud would take place. Just trade negotiations. And on the one hand, demanding hostages before you'll consider buying a product seems downright dystopic. But on the other hand, I've used Kickstarter before, so I get it. And this will shock you. Fraud still happened in trade. Because hostages in the Middle Ages don't work. And so Athelstan's move to demand Constantine's son strikes me as spiteful and not likely to be diplomatically successful. And all of a sudden, Athelstan's court expanded. Because as a noble hostage, this son would be kept in court. So, here we are, with another prince being raised in King Athelstan's court. Although this one was there for darker reasons. But with the agreement struck, the imperial army turned and headed south. And they brought with them King Constantine and his son. Constantine would now be part of the English court, at least for a while all the better to keep an eye on him, and would also force him to have to be witness to the victorious army's march home. And make no mistake about it, this would have been a celebratory march, punctuated by feasts to mark their success. For example, in Buckingham, the army stopped for a while to reward some of the king's loyal followers for their actions in the defeat and the ravaging of Scotland. It would have been a luxurious feast, with tales being told, food and drink being shared, gifts being given out, and through all of it, the Scottish king had to watch. And while it does certainly seem spiteful to make Constantine watch those celebrations, the truth is that the excitement that Athelstan and his men felt was probably quite real. This campaign was proof of concept for Athelstan's notion of empire. The authority of England had been challenged, and in response, Athelstan's sub-kings had answered the call and raised a force larger than anything that had been seen since the days of Rome. His military organization had worked. His statecraft had worked. Athelstan was titled as Rex, but in essence, he was emperor. And he celebrated like one. All while the disheartened king of Scotland watched, helpless. And with the war over in the following year, life got back to normal. And that meant that the king's court was back in full swing. And right away, Athelstan brought it to Exeter and held a second great court, 
further rubbing salt in the wound of Cornwall. And then he held an assembly at Cirencester. Now this means little to nothing for us, but in the mid-900s, Cirencester was the center of taxation and tributes for the western portion of Athelstan's dominion. And thanks to that role, this city was hated with a passion by the British regions who had been savagely taxed by the English. This was a city that stirred so much hatred among the Welsh that its greedy stewards earned special mention in the Armes Prydian. Do you remember the tributes of the dogs and cattle that were meant to break the backs of the Welsh kingdoms? They likely went through Cirencester. For these dominated people, this was a place of pain, poverty, and cultural humiliation. And Athelstan decided to call all his high-ranked subjects there and threw an elaborate, expensive celebration with his English court. It was either a callous failure to read a room, or it was a directly provocative move by Athelstan, telling the Welsh that he was the boss. And it's possible he did this deliberately to remind them of their own defeat and the misery of their impoverishment. And remember, these are the same Welsh who had just fought against Scotland on his behalf less than a year earlier. No matter which way you slice it, this assembly wasn't a good look. And sitting there, in court, watching, was King Constantine of Scotland. Something would have to bring this arrogant king down. And there were plenty of people who had reason to want to fight. King Olaf Guthrifson of Dublin had a claim to Jorvik, and he probably wanted to avenge his father, Guthrith. His cousin, Olaf Citrixen, also had a claim to Jorvik, and he had no love for Athelstan. As for Constantine, well, he wanted revenge. And as for his son, well, that's why you have more than one son, because hostages don't work. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.